it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Welcome to the Investing for Beginners podcast. This is Andrew Sather. Uh, Dave is taking the day off. So today I have a special guest with us. Today's guest is David Keller. He is the president and chief strategist at Sierra Alpha Research LLC. I'm very excited to hear what he has to say about behavioral finance. So before we dig into all of that and, and hear everything that David's got going on in the stock market investing and finance world, first off, thanks David for joining the show. And if you can give us the listeners, just a short synopsis of kind of where you've been, how your investing journey has been and how it's taken you and what's something cool that you're working on today. Absolutely. And, and thanks, Andrew, so much for the invitation. It's great to great to join you. And I, I've listened to some of the, the, the episodes and uh, of, the, of the podcast. I think it's fantastic. And I love your focus on educating uh, beginning investors. That's there, There's so much that uh, investors have to learn as they get started. So, so thanks for what you guys are doing. I think it's great. Um, so my, uh, I've been in the financial industry for about 19 years. I started in uh, mid-2000, which if you know your financial market history, meant, uh, means you, you know that the first uh, you know, 6, 12, 18 months of my investing uh, experience were relatively difficult, <laughs> which was coming out of the tech bubble and, and, and watching uh, people that had come before me sort of struggling with that. And I was at Bloomberg uh, in New York for the first eight years of, uh, of my career. And that's where I learned about behavioral finance, investor sentiment, decision-making, and then uh, technical analysis. And my, uh, my uh, university background was studying music and psychology, which is kind of a non-traditional background, but somehow really well suited me for thinking about investor sentiment and also uh, you know, doing statistical analysis of stock prices because there's a lot of mathematical uh, similarities to what I was doing uh, with music, actually. So it ended up being a pretty, a pretty good fit for me. And then in 2008, I moved up to Boston and was a managing director of research for Fidelity Investments for about eight and a half years. So I ran two of the research groups there uh, in asset management. So I ran the technical research team where we advised all the portfolio managers on buy and sell decisions on individual stocks and also broad asset allocation. Um, and then I ran the new associate program called the Business Associate Program, where we have 
you know, young analysts uh, rotate between research departments and, and find a good fit for them. And then end of 2016, I left Fidelity, relocated to Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm at now. And I started my own independent research firm called Sierra Alpha Research. And so I work with financial advisors, institutional investors, and also more and more uh, some individual investors, uh, really uh, helping them to improve their investment process, develop good routines and and focus on uh, good habits and decision making and try to unpack all those behavioral biases that for some reason cause us to make poor decisions a lot of times with, uh, with our investments. Um, and, and what I'm working on now is, uh, and I appreciate you asking, so I, I work with a firm called StockCharts.com based out in Seattle and, uh, and actually starting a show for them on StockCharts TV, which is really geared towards individual investors, uh, self-directed investors, and, and called the Mindful Investor, where we'll relate um, sort of mindfulness and, and mental programming and, and, uh, and, and how that relates to investment decisions. So that's the, that's the quick rundown on where I've been. That's uh, we didn't intentionally do this, but it's kind of a nice segue from the episode we recorded last week. We were talking about minimalism and trying to improve the way that you study the market and approach investing by working on yourself. And so I like this idea that you're talking about with your column called The Mindful Investor that's kind of focused on, like you said, building... I don't know if you call it like building skills, but like building the tools to make somebody better at investing by kind of focusing big picture and kind of reining yourself in versus being so focused on the results, maybe looking more at the process. I think that's a cool idea. You know, it, it's a really good point. And, uh, and it sounds like a good segue to what we, what we can talk about, because I think um, a lot of times we measure investing success based on performance, based on an outcome. And Again, one of the worst things you can do is have a good run of investment performance and, and then attribute it all to your routine, to your process, because then when you have bad performance, you attribute it to the market. It's something out of your control. Um, and, and in reality, a lot of times, you know, you will have good or bad returns or good or bad performance for a number of reasons. And your your process is, is a really important part of it, but it's, it's part of it. And so having people understand that it's not just about the performance, not just about the outcome, but it's the inputs. It's how you actually come to a decision because that's what tends to be more robust. Meaning that's what, that's what's going to tend to be more consistent. That's what's going to allow you to do well in different market environments and over a longer period of time because you will be able to, uh, you know, withstand different movements and different market conditions much better if you have a better process in place. And I like, so the thing that popped into my head when you said that, and I'm not going to claim to be any sort of expert or even say I know anything about psychology. Um, but I have heard, you mentioned you're from Cleveland, Ohio. We were talking a little bit before this conversation about Cleveland, Ohio sports. And I've heard, I don't know if you call it psychology or what, but there's this idea where um, sports fans, if they have their team, if their team wins, they feel like, yeah, we did it. But when their team loses, it's like, oh, they lost. And so it kind of reminds me of like what you just said about when we do good in the stock market. Yes, it was because of our process. If we did poorly, oh, it's because the market's crazy. Yeah. So a wise person once said, never confuse brains with a bull market. Um, nice. so when, when things are going well, we love to attribute it to our, our genius and our skill. 
And when things go poorly, it's more because of luck and conditions outside our control. And you, you mentioned kind of identifying, right? It's our cohort of, you know, we're, we're a good investor along with other good investors. When things go poorly, it's, oh, it's, you know, the market. It's, and we, and we actually have ways to personify the market. We call it Mr. Market or Dr. Copper. And, you know, the market takes on this persona of this thing that's there out, you know, out there to get you. When in, in reality, again, it's all about it's all about your routine and how you come to your decision. And, and the good news is, I think for investors, is there's a lot of work that you could do to improve your decision making process. And uh, and that's where I think with a lot of investors, not just beginning investors, but even more seasoned investors, there's opportunity to to grow and, to, and, and as an investor and to mature as an investor, thinking about your decision process. So, can you give one example? Obviously, our shows. Um, structured for beginners. So maybe for the beginner who, let's say, as a hypothetical, jumped into the market, um, got into a very overpriced stock and, and was way overexposed to it and then got burned. And so maybe this this temporary setback is, is a good humbling experience to, to kind of want to learn and develop a skill or, or an idea or behavioral mindset to help deal with this specific thing that we're talking about, about um, keeping your emotions uh, based on, you know, keeping them constant based on how the market's treating you. So can you give like one example of maybe how somebody could do that? Definitely. And I would say you you hit on a great point, which is as an investor at at some point, and usually pretty early on, you will have a huge miss or a, 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 an investing experience that will go against you that will stick with you your whole career. And if you ask any, seasoned investor for, uh, you know, one of their, uh, you know, worst calls or worst trades, they will be able to pull something probably early on in the career where they lost a good amount of money. Um, and hopefully if you, if you're starting early enough, there aren't a lot of zeros attached to that bad decision or that badness, but you know, everyone, I, I think that's part of the learning experience as an investor is, uh, is going through and actually putting money to work and seeing when something didn't work well. And, uh, you know, I would say for me, as I mentioned, I, you know, I started in, um, 2000, and I was a, a technical analyst, but I remember in particular um, one of the worst uh, decisions that I made, or maybe worst calls, was in 2013. So this is maybe in the middle of my career here. When, if you know your market history, the market sold off in 2000 through 9/11 into the 2002 low, rallied back up into 2007, 2008. We we pulled back, and then 2013, we once again the S&P repeated and, and returned to those high levels. And so for me, one of the one of the, the calls that I made was being really bearish on the market because I'd been hurt two times in a row and I knew when the S&P got around to that level, that's where there was an exhaustion of buyers, that's where valuations were extended, that's where sellers came in, whatever it was, it, it, it caused the market to go back down. And again, if you know your market history, 2013 would have been a fantastic buying opportunity because the market just plowed right through those highs and continued on to multi-year rallies, uh, you know, and, and again, with all sorts of movement afterwards, but overall it's, it was a, it was a good time to buy. So for me, I, I realized that, and one of the learning experiences that I, I find a lot of people have is not to be too tied to a specific market outcome. And there's, there are behavioral reasons what, what, what you could call that. And I, I would call that probably confirmation bias, which is, and what that is, is you develop a investment thesis. And then as you look what's happening around you, any evidence that supports that thesis, you attribute greater weight to, and anything that 
does not confirm or disagrees with your thesis, you kind of push it away mentally. So as a result, you, you know, I'm bearish. And then you start gathering more and more bearish evidence to make yourself feel better about the fact that you're bearish. And anything that's more bullish, you kind of push it aside mentally. As a result, you're sort of tying yourself to a specific market outcome as opposed to just without any emotion, without any preconceived biases, just looking at what the evidence uh, is telling you and then determining how you want to be positioned as a result of that. So for me, it was, I, you know, I, I went into that, uh, you know, that re- returning to the market high in 2013 as being pretty bearish. And I found all sorts of reasons why I should stick with it. And then the market just cont- uh, continued going higher. And I stuck with that bearish thesis because I kept trying to find things to, uh, to convince myself. So my recommendation, especially earlier in your career is, is don't be too tied to a specific point of view or a specific, uh, you know, position. Look at the evidence with, uh, you know, with a with a clean slate every day, every week, whenever you do it. Gather the evidence and then use the evidence to make a decision, and then see how you need to be positioned relative to that thesis. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform, our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. 
With our convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free. No insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I love that. Yeah, confirmation bias, that can be very tricky. I think you can find whatever political side you're on, whatever bull or bear side you're on on any stock you can pull up articles on on google to confirm you so i guess challenging your opinions i think you know having um two conflicting opinions just challenging your opinions i think it's a great way Uh, can you maybe give another example of a, a kind of behavioral bias that might that an investor might run into and and one one way they can maybe get resolve that or or fight it maybe maybe there's no sure. resolving these type of things but maybe doing better to combat it absolutely and i would say you bring up a really good point um before and before i give you another example i, I think you have to remember that uh, you know i i am a professional behavioral finance expert I, i've studied it and and have, have have learned all about it and and worked with a lot of investors on improving it i'm still not immune to the impact of these behavioral biases so it's it's not like you have to learn enough about these things and then they no longer affect you they're they're hardwired into your brain there there are reasons why we make decisions a certain way and it's not just related to investing or with our money you know we make a lot of decisions every day what we're going to eat where we're going to shop how much we're going to pay for something and these behavioral biases are all related to all of those decisions as well. So, you know, I think the, the number one thing you need to do is have an awareness of what these uh, biases are, what, you know, how you think, and then start to develop systems and behaviors that are going to help minimize negative impact of some of those, of some of those biases. So, so having said that, I, uh, the second one that comes to mind immediately is, is what I call the endowment effect or endowment bias. And what that basically is, is that um, something that you own or something that you possess, you attribute greater value than you would otherwise. Um, and as an example, let's say you gave me a water bottle and it's my favorite water bottle. I love this water bottle. So for me, that water bottle has greater value because it has a sentimental connection to it. I would not sell my water bottle because I love it that much. It's that important to me. But you can't think of uh, stocks or your portfolio as owning a bunch of very special sentimental things that you can't get rid of. Um, Will Danoff, who's a portfolio manager at Fidelity and, and who I worked with, um, among others, um, he would always say, remember, you don't own stocks, you just rent them. 
Now, while technically you do own stocks and you're a shareholder and you have responsibilities there, of course, you can't think of it as owning a position that you are unable to get out of. Um, You are renting a position and you own that stock for the time when you feel like it's going to help your positioning, help your returns, help your um, your overall uh, portfolio. So um, so you have to be ready to uh, let go of them. Um, what, what happens is once we own a stock, once you own Home Depot, you immediately have an emotional connection to it. And when you go to sell Home Depot, you're going to think of all the times when you owned it and it did very well. You're going to think of how what a good name it's been for you, how it's been such a great performer in your portfolio. And as a result, all of a sudden you won't sell it early enough because you will be holding on to it uh, way too long just because of that sentimental connection. So there are a number of ways to try to disconnect from that. What I've often found is um, if you have a, a stock in your portfolio or a position, uh, any any sort of asset, an ETF or anything, don't think of it as I own this stock. Do I want to still own it or do I want to sell it? Think of it. If I had new money to put in the market today, would I put it into this name? So Home Depot, and again, not, not saying anything in particular about that company, but let's say you had Home Depot in your portfolio. Don't think of, do I still want to hold this or not? Think of it as if I had new money today, if I had an influx, I, I just uh, you know had a, uh, an influx of capital, would I put new money in that today? And if the answer is no, then you may want to reconsider, is it something you should be holding at all, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going to go somewhere with your new money, should your old money be moving to a better opportunity uh, as well? Um, so that's the kind of the, the, the way that you can avoid uh, endowment effect or endowment bias, which is, again, just attributing greater value to something you own just because it has that sentimental connection for you. I like that idea of looking at, okay, am I going to buy it now? If so, then why am I holding it? Um, obviously, you know, you have Sierra Alpha Research. I'm I'm staring at the logo right now. It's pretty cool. Um, at first <laughs> glance, I didn't notice. It was, um, you know, like I just saw the stock chart. I didn't see the, the plane on there. Right. Um, and and uh, I would like to talk about that. But first, you know, on, on the topic of kind of, finding a good sell point and trying to combat the endowment effect. Do you have, you know, I don't want you to have to share any proprietary information to do with your firm, but is there like a a good, like how do you determine uh, when you want to sell something? Just, I guess we could, we could talk for hours and days probably, but like if you could boil it down to like a, a general, process of like what kind of things you consider when you're considering selling a stock? Yeah, really good question. And, and I would say the answer, you know, again, the, the, there are simple ways to answer, but I, I would say the first thing you would need to, to, to consider before you can answer that question for yourself is what your time frame is, right? So a lot of times investors, I feel like don't have a clear sense of what their time frame is. Are they, you know, more of a short-term investor, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, or are you more a long-term investor, a couple of months, a couple of years? Um, because how you'd answer that question, that should affect your buy discipline and your sell discipline for sure. And, and I think the reason why that's the case is because if you look at the data, if you look at the equity markets you know, globally, but, but especially in the U.S. over multiple cycles, multiple decades, if your time frame is short, if you're looking a couple you know, days to a couple weeks and that's your investment horizon, in general, you should be betting on mean reversion uh, because in general, that's what stocks tend to do on that time frame. So if things have been weak for the last couple of days to weeks, they tend to rebound and go higher. If they've been uh, you know, unreasonably strong, they tend to come back. So you're better off sort of you know, looking for the peaks and valleys within that short-term horizon. But I would imagine a lot of your investors are more longer, or a lot of your listeners are more longer-term investors, looking a couple months to a couple years. And if that's the case, then you really should be leaning more towards trend following, if you could, 
um, and, and looking for, um, you know, stocks that are starting to improve because in general, the data supports stronger performing names um, have, you know, continued to perform well. Things that outperform tend to continue to outperform over those uh, time horizons. So the trick is figuring out when something is, when that performance is going to change, when something has had a really good run and starts to roll over or when something has had, has been underperforming and is really starting to improve. That's really the game on that, on that horizon. So for me, as you, as you alluded to earlier, my background is uh, in technical research, technical analysis, which is really trying to understand investor psychology, supply and demand through price charts and trying to quantify that sentiment that you, that you see around you. So there are a number of tools you can use as a trend follower to try to identify when trends are reversing. Um, and in our in the technical toolkit, there's a lot of things people use, things like moving averages and other ways of smoothing out price movements, trying to get rid of the noise a little bit and just look overall for where, uh, you know, where inflection points are. So the one, you know, in, in, you know, I guess that's the long answer. The short answer, you know, when I uh, have a series of positions and I'm, and I'm trying to understand when to, to start considering exiting them. I do a lot of screening for stocks in a portfolio, also stocks in a broader universe that are hitting a new 13-week low. And I find if I do that consistently, anything that pops up on that list, you know, it hasn't gone to zero yet. It might just be beginning to, to roll over, but it pops up and it's a red flag. It pops up on my radar. And then I see this is something that had been going up and is now starting to go down a little bit. And a new 13-week low flags the fact that something has changed, something new has come in, and instead of buying, investors are starting to take profits or sell. And again, it doesn't tell me to automatically, robotically exit the position. It just tells me that it should be on my list of things to review and, and determine whether or not I'm comfortable still owning the name. Because as a value investor, a lot of times, you know, a cheaper price just means that, you know, that, that could be a good thing because it's a, it's a better valuation, might be an opportunity to add to the position. But again, all, all large losses begin as small losses. So if you can catch things earlier on in the move, a lot of times you're going to do better. And, and, and again, the goal is to avoid the climactic losses when something really goes down uh, for an extended period. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Is it fair to say then having a system and then really staying disciplined to that system rather than letting your emotions run free? Absolutely. And and I would say, you know, there's a there's been a big movement in the financial industry from more uh, qualitative, more uh, subjective forms of analysis to more quantitative or, or objective forms of analysis. Uh, you know, the rising of quant... Models, quant investing has certainly has certainly happened, um, but I think what you want to remember is it's very difficult for individual investors. I think to completely disconnect and just have all of their uh, investments run by a machine, run by a, a, a computer, because you miss out on the ability to actually review things, uh, you know, subjectively and make a good decision based on your own experiences. So I think the best, you know, I don't think it's man versus machine. I think the best. Uh, answer broadly speaking is man plus machine, right? You met, people are are good investors are good at certain things, and and make sure you're focusing your time on that. Computers are actually really good at a lot of things too, like you know uh, identifying qualities of good investments, of you know of of screening for good ideas, of monitoring things so you don't have to. And I think a thoughtful investor is able to combine those two things: the more subjective and the more objective, in a in a really meaningful way. Plus, I mean, with AI, you just never know what weird kind of number thing will will lead to some stock being there that shouldn't be there or some signal flagging that shouldn't flag and from an outside perspective it's obvious 
an algorithm that's just so strict. I mean, if technology was perfect, we wouldn't have bugs and we wouldn't have internet issues and we wouldn't have cell phone reception going out, right? I was I was off we were off the air earlier too. I was talking about how my cell phone reception just completely went out um earlier today. So uh yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that's that's um those are great points and, and I'm glad you clarified with kind of how you approach both the buy and sell process from the technical standpoint. So back to your research firm and, and the logo. Um, I'm assuming there's a story behind that because it's pretty creative and uh, <laughs> you have some imagery there. So would you care to share about that? Yeah. So the logo you're referring to, it's an airplane. And, uh, and so, you know, it's funny, I was a student pilot, um, boy, six, seven years ago, I want to say I, I started uh, flying airplanes. And it was really, it, it's, it's funny looking back, I can't believe I was trying to de-stress after, you know, uh, difficulties investing. I decided to go, you know, fly an airplane where, you know, imminent demise is always around the corner, I feel like, because there's a lot of risk involved. So I probably could have done better coming up with a better way to uh, to relieve stress. But, you know, there are, there are moments when you're when you're flying an airplane, which are just completely, um, you know, ethereal, just these beautiful moments where you feel like you're free and you're flying and and and, uh, and all your worries are on the ground below. You don't have to, to worry about it. But as I was learning to fly an airplane, flying a Cessna 172, uh, my flight instructor uh, would actually trade stocks when he wasn't up in the air. He would do it as a hobby. So when he learned that that's what I did, we ended up spending a lot of time when you know, a lot of times you're just flying straight level and navigating and you've got time to chat. So we would often talk about the markets and, and talk about the relationship between trading and uh, and flying. Because there's, I mean, if you think about it, if you think of any financial media or writing about uh, the markets, there are often aviation terms that get thrown in. Something's taking off or something's stalling. There's a glide path and, um, you know, crashes and, and all these things have imagery that come from aviation. Uh, so when I thought of, uh, you know, creating my own firm and, and decided what to do with it, I, I really went with an aviation theme. And the name of the firm is actually Sierra Alpha Research, which if you know that is, uh, you know, is the, is the code SA, which as a, as a pilot stands for situational awareness. And this is as a pilot, one of the things that I learned that, that made so much sense for investing was when you're flying an airplane, you have to have an awareness of what's going on outside of the cockpit, what's happening around you, because otherwise you will do something like fly into a mountain or another airplane or the ground or something and your flight's over prematurely. Uh, and so, you know, you have to have a good awareness, a situational awareness of what's happening around you. Um, and, and you have all sorts of techniques about monitoring your instruments and looking outside and, and tracking the horizon and looking for other airplanes. And uh, you learn all these tricks. And as I was thinking about investing, I immediately start, started to see some parallels because I think a lot of times as, as traders or as investors, you can have blinders on and you kind of focus on your specific portfolio or one specific position um, or one industry or one group of names you're looking at. And you miss the opportunity to look at all the opportunities that, that present themselves. There are so many levers that you can pull, especially as an individual investor with ETFs. I mean, there's so much, so many different opportunities that you could potentially uh, go into. And so you really have to have a way of identifying, uh, you know, what the conditions are, identifying where the opportunities are. Um, because a lot of times there are things that are happening that you might not be aware of if you don't have a good process for reviewing that. So, so yeah, that I, with a lot of my writing, with a lot of the videos that I produce it, uh, it tends to apply the lessons that I, I learned firsthand flying an airplane and then trying to tie that back into investing in it. And I think the parallels tend to work pretty well. Yeah, that's cool. I don't know hardly anything about flying, but um, I know it is. It, it looks a lot of fun. 
Uh, I don't want to like totally derail our, our conversation, but I have to ask just because it like pops in my mind. What are your thoughts on um, maybe a sensitive topic with, with all the, the Boeing crashes that happened, but people claiming that maybe the way I see it is like, they're saying that some of the autopilot stuff is taking so much of the responsibility away from the pilots that they're kind of like sleepwalking through it. Maybe it's having an effect on their situational awareness, quote unquote. Do you, do you have a feeling one way or the other towards that? So what's, so I have a lot of thoughts on it uh, and not to go too, too deep into it, but I, I, you know, you have to remember with the plane I was flying, there's no autopilot. I mean, you are pretty much on your own and you have instruments and you have, you know, uh, um, a lot of uh, redundancy of systems. And so you have things that are working for you, but in the end it's your, you know, you have to fly the plane. And, and the reason why I did it, you can learn in more, uh, you know, sophisticated aircraft with better avionics, but, you know, I wanted to learn what they call stick and rudder flying, which is, you know, very simplistic old school, you know, from the beginning of flight, you know, just basic, you know, understanding of how the plane is operating now, what happens as you get further and further and you and you learn, and this is well beyond where I'm at, but once you learn complex uh, aircraft and uh, multi-engine aircraft and uh, and jets and, you know, and, and the, um, the things that uh, airliners that, that people would be able to fly down the road, a lot of that is automated. So when you fly on an airliner, there's very little that the pilot is, is directly inputting. The plane is flying itself in a lot of ways, and they're just planning things ahead of time and, and getting gathering a lot of data, and the plane is able to adapt to that. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting debate right now, I think, going back to that man versus machine thing, right? In, in terms of, you know, people feel, I, I think, as you alluded to, that, you know, a little uncomfortable potentially with the plane doing a lot of it. You have to remember, um, you know, those couple of things that we've heard about with the 737s, those are incredibly rare. Um, and also that what, uh, you know, one of the things you learn as a as a uh, student pilot is you spend a lot of time studying uh, plane crashes, actually, which is a little dark, a little dismal, but it's a great learning experience because you learn what happened when things went wrong. And a lot of times it's trying to recreate those conditions and making sure that you can get through them uh, and, and be able to you know, make sure that, it, that, that, you, uh, that you perform well under the same, similar uh, conditions. Um, so as a result, there's a lot that you learn from when things went poorly. And what you learn, unfortunately, is that most, if not, I mean, I mean, literally 90 some percent probably of of uh, flight uh, incidents are due to human error. It's rarely due to the plane uh, having a malfunction. It's usually the, the the pilot doing something that pilots do, which is funny that because it ties it back to decision making. It's you know maybe resting on your laurels, becoming too comfortable with a certain configuration. It's not having a good awareness of what's going on around you. So I think there are good lessons and the good news. I think there's a lot of good lessons to be learned from some of these recent incidents for, you know, for a lot of pilots to be better at, uh, at having a good awareness of, of what's going on. And, and again, hopefully, hopefully it, it has some good where people are able to learn from, uh, from what's happened. That's fascinating. So you mentioned you're, you've been investing since um, 2000s when you, when you started. Sure. Um, and talking about like that AI versus human, it's how like how much has your approach evolved, and, and do you see that as maybe one one additional kind of you know not that we're pitting them together like human versus AI, and, and you said uh, it's good for for both to kind of work together and kind of get the best of both, but you know how much of that is. Because I, I'm imagining it, it's a very popular topic right now. If if you go on a lot of different investing podcasts, they seem to all be talking about AI. 
you know, with AI, it's like how how long do you let the AI do its thing before if you're not making any adjustments or any sort of evals on like, well, you know, maybe that algorithm worked five years ago. It doesn't work so much today. <laughs> do you know, sure. like, is that, have you noticed that? Because th- you've you've had a much longer career than I have. So how, how has your process evolved? And do you see that as another, you know, score one point for the humans? <laughs> so, no, I have a lot of things to say about this. And I would say that, you know, number one, um, first off, remember that when you're, anytime you're modeling the markets or modeling anything, it's not reality. It's a model of reality. So any sort of AI, any machine learning, any, any, any even just a simple quantitative model, a trend following model, uh, valuation model, it's all based on an assumption of what has happened previously and that conditions are going to be similar in some way going forward. Um, and so again, what, what has killed a lot of quantitative models and a lot of, uh, a lot of things is when, you know, that, three, four, five standard deviation uh, thing, that event that is completely unlikely uh, happens. And uh, as many have seen, if you've read like the, the uh, Nicholas Taleb books uh, about the black swan and, and other mm-hmm. things, um, you know, investing performance has fat tails. Meaning if you think of a normal distribution of, you know, the bell curve of how often certain things would tend to happen in a normalistic environment, um, you know, there's a, you know, as, as things get further and further from average, they're less and less likely. But in investing, those tails are actually a little wider. It's a higher probability of some random, completely off the wall thing happening. So that five standard deviation move that should never, ever happen uh, based on normal assumptions happens a lot as investors. And that's what, you know, long term capital management in 1998, that's what kind of killed them was this completely unmodelable event happening and, it, and the model no longer uh, started to work. So I would I would say, uh, you know, as investors, we always have to be wary of anything that's modeled and any sort of uh, system that's designed to automate what's going to happen going forward, because it's only as good as, as the assumptions the model is able to make. Um, the second point I would tell about you is that, um, you know, in terms of score one for the humans, I mean, any model, I think the, the best opportunities for investors using AI and using computer power is having the creativity to identify where the opportunities are going to be. So the model and the capabilities of the artificial intelligence are only as good as the, the inputs that you're able to create and, and the ways that you're able to imagine opportunities evolving going forward, new industries, new um, market dynamics, new uh, ways that things are going to move and, and develop. And, and so that tr- takes a human creativity that takes a thinking outside the box. And so I think there will always be a place for um, for humans, you know, related to to developing, you know, the next thing, developing the next model. Um, and then my final comment, not to go too off the, the rails with it, but I think the final thing is, you know, the way that I think of, you know, people have said, you know, if we're able to model everything and able to have ETFs driven by, you know, robo-advisors, for example, are humans even going to have a purpose anymore in the financial industry? And I would say there certainly the answer is yes, in my opinion. I think it, it relates a lot to uh, bank tellers. So if you think years ago when um, ATMs started coming out, the thought was bank tellers are going to be obsolete because all you need is an ATM. It's going to be able to do everything you need. Now, if you go to your local bank branch and, and they still keep building them so you know that they, they need them, if you go there, there's still a bunch of bank tellers there and they still have jobs. But I think the job description has changed a lot in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and so I think the same thing with uh, with investing. If you think of money management, mutual fund companies, ETF uh, you know, providers, all these people that are even pension funds and insurance companies, others that are managing assets, 
Um, you know, the way that you invest will certainly be different, just like it's different than it was 30 years ago. It will be different 30 years down the road. And the role of the advisor, the role of the investor um, will certainly evolve. Um, but I think there will still be a place for it. I think the job description might be might be a little different because the computing power, the, the artificial intelligence would develop to in ways that it's going to um, allow you to do different things, focus on different things than you might have uh, might have before. So I think the good news is there will all be a, always be a place for human interaction. It's just the nature of it that'll probably evolve over time. Those are those are all three fantastic points. Uh, great answers. I think you know in in the situation you talk about where even in the in the teller world, I think a lot more people go to. I used to work as a teller, so I know like. Oh. Okay. Comparing like when I, when I was in high school, I worked as a teller. Ten, what was it? Ten, twelve years ago to now, a lot more people use ATMs. I, I've noticed just from going into a branch than than do tellers. But you know, to your point, like if it ever evolved into that where it was a bunch of ETFs and robo advisors, I think if anything, that creates more opportunity for the in, individual investor who's managing himself rather than less because. There's more opportunity to kind of go against the crowd. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's kind of the way I see it. So it's less doom and gloom and more, you know, how are you as the investor going to react to how the market could potentially change? In, in my, I guess my maybe little off the wall thesis is I think there, you know, again, just thinking of back to my background with, you know, investor psychology, I think there's this, um, this pendulum that swings between more left-brained uh, ways of thinking as investors and more right-brained way of thinking. And um, uh, there's a book called The Tao Jones Averages, which is written by this guy called uh, named Bennett Goodspeed. It's a really interesting read and a uh, quick read, but it, it talks a lot about whole-brained investing and you know when to use your left-brain, more detail-oriented mind, and when to use more of your right-brain creativity, you know, creative uh, thinking uh, side of the brain. And a good analyst, a good you know, stock analysts needs to be very left brain geared, right? They need to be looking at details and modeling a company's uh, cash flows and earnings outcomes and, and, and thinking of the, all the details. But a good money manager, a good investor needs to be more right brain, needs to think about how all of those companies are related and, and think about relationships and thinks about, think about opportunities and how they might evolve. And I would say there's definitely been a swing to more left brain thinking over the last 10, 20, 30 years in the financial industry. And, and if you think a lot of the newest hires in big institutions are not, you know, stock jockeys, traders that are thinking of, you know, like uh, trading places type of thinking, they're thinking of, uh, you know, it's more math PhDs and physics PhDs and, and people with STEM backgrounds that are thinking of things more from a left brain detail oriented model based reality. I think that's going to open the door. I think the future is is because that computing power will be more commoditized as it becomes more widespread. I think the opportunity for investors is going to be to be more right brain oriented and think more creatively. And, and the, the investors are able to think of relationships and themes that might evolve and, you know, new industries that would come out, uh, cryptocurrencies and, and such, and how to play for that down the road, 5, 10, 20 years. I think that's where the opportunities are going to evolve for, especially for individual investors. Yeah, and it speaks perfectly to your background, David. You talked about um, studying music and psychology, and I think obviously having sort of a right-brained personality, living in a left-brained industry. I think uh, it's 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 a cool it's a cool message you've got, and I encourage you to continue sharing it. If people are more interested in what you're doing, what you've got going on online, I know you mentioned um, a podcast. I think you said, and you also do videos, and obviously your blog too. Um, 
spit out the details. Where, where can we find you? Yeah, thanks again, Andrew. This has been great. I, I really appreciate your questions. This is a, this is a fun conversation. Um, I, I look forward to engaging any any of your listeners. And two good places to find me. One is uh, my own blog. It's called Market Misbehavior. So if you just go to marketmisbehavior.com, I try to you know look at that intersection between behavioral psychology and decision making and investing and relate things like flying and music and and, and so forth back to uh, the investment process. And then I also on stockcharts.com, I write a, a column there and also uh, do a, a show for Stockcharts TV called The Mindful Investor. So if you go to stockcharts.com, you'll see the, the links at the top to, to check that out. So yeah, look, look forward to engaging uh, any of your listeners in those places. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, David. I definitely enjoyed our conversation. I thought everything you talked about with the, some of the behavioral finance stuff, that's super practical and people can use that today. And then um, some of your thoughts on how you see kind of the AI thing. I thought that was really fun too. So thanks again. Absolutely. And your pl- pleasure to join you. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.